What's up, everyone? Welcome back. This is an all-new episode of Suiting Up, presented by Public.com and OutSystems, and it's episode two of season three. I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Today, we've got one of the GOATs. 18 championships we tallied from her time at UConn to playing overseas in Russia, four WNBA titles most recently in the Wubble, a World and Olympics. Today, I host Sue Bird. I've known Sue for a number of years now, and I remember when I launched the show in 2017, I was like, this is the prototype guest. Her range is incredible. Hopefully, you'll hear that and walk away from the show as we discuss topics like playing your best ball at 40 and winning, which she did and is doing. She just signed a huge new contract. We talk about leadership and behind-the-scenes conversations with her peers during the WNBA-led social justice activism where their ratings on television went up. We talk about the great debate, MJ versus LeBron, her time in these rigorous practices with all-time coach Gino Ariema at UConn. We discuss gender equality in sports. We talk about her Instagram engagement, but not that type of engagement, an actual wedding engagement with her partner, Megan Rapino, and the hoop dreams overseas of taking million-dollar contracts to how the business of the WNBA will succeed. And final note, we recorded this pod at the end of 2020, and we referenced Atlanta Dream owner Kelly Leffler, who spoke out against Sue and the WNBA's player activism on behalf of Breonna Taylor during those games. She held a Senate seat in 2020. They went to a runoff in January and ended up losing that seat in Georgia. As it relates to the Dream, the league said in a recent statement that, quote, we understand a sale of the franchise is close to being finalized. That should do it. Let's start the show. This show is made possible by or presented by sponsors, public.com, who offers a whole new way to invest. They make the stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money. And OutSystems, a company that provides tools to help companies like ours quickly build apps to solve for their business needs. With the PLL, OutSystems helped us design our COVID app for the Champ Series, ensuring the health and safety of all of our players, staff, coaches, and cardboard cutout fans. Let's get to Sue. Sue Bird, you're everywhere. And I know you have a home on the West Coast, but right now we find you at your home on the East Coast. Recently engaged, winner of the 2020 WNBA Championship. That's your fourth. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, I mean, it's been, it's been kind of interesting. I've had the last like month and a half, two months have been like really amazing for me. Um, won the championship. Like you said, I turned 40. Megan and I got engaged Amazing. and I'm, it's like, we feel bad being like 2020 took a turn for us. Yeah. Like we feel bad being like, this is actually a great month. I want to talk about the WMA championship game though, or the series. Uh, Cause there's a lot of like sports anecdotes there and, and that you guys beat the Las Vegas team that uh, had taken the two games of the regular season from you and then swept them in the championship. So there's always that like interesting kind of come from behind or, or the underdog. And it was granted, it was a one versus two seed. But yeah, what, what was that like just entering into the championship game, being isolated? I know your fiance was there. So that was like providing a source of comfort in, in a pretty lonely environment that we experienced too. It was difficult. It was tough because there was, and I, I've always known this about myself. Like I've always known that I'm not just a basketball player. I, like just like in regular life, like I like to get away from it. I need a break. And this just did not give you any kind of escape. There was no escaping it. You know, if you wanted to go for a walk, you were running into people from other teams mm. or referees or you name it. You couldn't really get away. And so what was the only option? What, like sit in your room? That was going to be 
its own kind of, you know, type of hill. So I was, like you said, very lucky to have Megan with me. That made it a lot easier. Um, jokingly on my team, I was like, yeah, I can't complain because everybody else was kind of solo, except I think one of them, my teammates had someone, but otherwise I was like, yeah, I know it's harder for you guys. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You helped build it though. So you're vice president of the WNBA PA. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking a little bit with Kathleen Engelbert prior to it when we were building our bubble model out in Utah mm-hmm. and we were talking about different locations, Florida, Utah, and uh, you guys were there a lot longer than us, uh, which makes it more isolating, I think. But yes. food seemed to be better than some of the other leagues. What about like activities? And uh, I remember seeing a, a picture on your story about being in the pool and stuff like that. The pool was the hot spot. The problem with the pool and the pool was great, but the problem with the pool was, again, it's like you really couldn't get away from other teams, other staffs, the referees, everybody was at the pool. But all in all, I would say that was, like I said, the hotspot. There really wasn't any other entertainment. There was a player lounge, which had like a couple TVs. I think they like hooked up some gaming stuff like PS, whatever to it. Um, There was like a karaoke machine in there, but it wasn't, you weren't going to do that. So we went in there to like, just chill. Yeah. Um, they did have these like excursions for us. So you had to like pre-plan it, but they could take your team to the beach and they kind of like, just like roped off an area and had this one little, like almost like a snack stand just for us. Yeah. So we could do that one day. Then they had like a boating excursion. Some of my teammates went, I actually didn't go on that one. So there were, but like we did that once. Yeah. That was that's all you had time. There was just so many games. Yeah, so many games. You're practicing. Do you, do you think like the isolation made the competitiveness, even though the the season in totality was shorter? Did it feel different? It feel more like college. It kind of felt like summer camp in this way because you were just like up and at them every day. I mean, I'm sure you went to a ton of camps growing up. Yeah, or maybe not a ton, but you experienced it. Where like you wake up, you're in your dorm, like you go, you see everybody, you see them in the meal room, you see them walking to the gym, or for you maybe the field, like you're seeing everybody all the time and then you have the games then you come back to eat dinner and you're seeing them there. Yeah. So you're just constantly around people yeah. like other people. I can't, obviously I can't stress that enough. Just how annoying that was. <laughs> and then I imagine on the PA side, I read that you were, and the rest of your group was, was really proactive around a mandate that, Hey, if we're going to play in the wobble that we need these social justice advocacy moments and we need clearance on wearing our shirts and we need clearance on say her name on the kind of the floor and elsewhere. What was that process like? Was there any resistance? Was there a lot of conversation behind the scenes amongst players? And mm-hmm. then to ownership group, we know a little bit about the Atlanta dream owner and, and uh, Kelly Loeffler. Uh, but that happened later. Our negotiations were starting right around the time where George Floyd was murdered. So it was at the height of of the the social unrest happening in our country. And obviously, our our league is made up predominantly of Black women, and this was impacting them in a way that I fully couldn't even understand. As much as I you try to learn and understand, obviously, there's I'll never fully understand. So with that, you know, my role as as a VP was definitely one of like shutting up and listening, hearing what my, you know, counterparts had to say. And the first thing was having our season, you know, stand for something more than basketball. Um, We eventually got to wanting it to be, you say her name and having Brianna Taylor on the jerseys that, that was, there was like a little bit of a process just to make sure we, we, we wanted it to be like exactly, you know, what we wanted to represent. So that took a second, but the non-negotiable right from the start was this season is going to be about more than basketball. Mm -hmm. And I just listened. And once I heard that, it was for, for me as someone who is in a leadership role, 
it was just about getting it done. And it was a lot of Zoom calls and a lot of tough conversations, some with the league. Um, the tough part with the league was never, they were on board right away. That mm. wasn't the tough part. It was just kind of like more logistics stuff. Mm. Uh, but then there was tough conversations with players more so than anything, because a lot of people in that moment didn't want to play. You know, a, a quote that always comes back was somebody saying on a Zoom call, you can't protest Black Lives Matter in a bubble. Because in that moment, you know, going to the streets, being with people, being in the protest, that there was something like empowering about that, but also it felt like you were making a difference and rightfully so. And, and I think for a lot of people, they didn't want to give that up. But right. eventually we kind of decided and, and through, like I said, a lot of conversation that we could have an even bigger impact by playing, by having, you know, live, a live television audience, for having mics in, in front of our face to talk about these things. Um, just as a league, as a collective group, we could have a bigger impact that way. And so obviously, you know, we know what happened and, and that's that we played. Yeah. Amazing. How, how do you build up more resilience around all of the backlash that comes through, whether you have major networks saying they shouldn't be doing this, stick to sports, politicizing a game that people look for as an outlet? I mean, I think at the end of the day, the, the answer to your question is pretty simple. I know and feel what I'm doing in my heart is right. And I know that it's an opportunity for me, for our league to have this impact. And, and I would be so regretful to not, you know, take the opportunity to not make the most of it. Mm. Um, so those two things right there really allow for me to kind of, again, within the, the, the framework of what we had with the WNBA, but it really allowed me to kind of do what I did, do what we all did and really not worry about the backlash. Cause we knew it was right. We knew we we're on the right side of history and, and listen, we're a league and I've kind of, as the season went, I've said this on, on, on a couple of different interviews. I'll share it here. It's like, as the season went, I started to realize like how ironic all these people telling us to stick to sports when no one has ever allowed us to stick to sports. Cause mm. as female athletes, you know, you go through, you know, you go through your career and it's never about the sport you play. It's never about what you do. It's always how you look. And actually, I lied. It is sometimes it is about your sport, mm. but that's only because they're comparing you to your male counterpart and they're telling you how not good you are. Mm. <laughs> so the times they do want to talk about, you know, your play on the court, it's always in some sort of negative light. So, you know, it kind of hit me like we've developed, and people ask often, like, why do you think the WNBA is so good at at you know standing up for these things? And it's because we've kind of had to. We've constantly had to fight back for um, you know each other for the league. And so this is no different. And this is something that, again, like I said, affects our league in a different way. And that's why Say Her Name was what we wanted to support. And that's why having Breonna Taylor's name on our jersey is what we wanted. Hmm. Because as much as Black people get lost and forgotten in our society in so many different ways, it's even worse for Black women. Different from the WNBA is our league is predominantly white. Right. And, uh, and so the conversations that we were having were important conversations to have uh, amongst white men. The psychological standing of the incumbency of a white male to talk to other white males about actual history and being better advocates and, and sharing truths that were avoided for a long time. And I think that's where the education even with Ibram Kendi and anti-racism being more important than staying on the sideline, because I think as a nation, we, we have erred on, on the side of caution and there's no more of that 
that can progress us. We, we have to be on the side of history that is actively anti-racist. But I think sports largely has and has been at the center of a number of debates around equality, gender, race, uh, sexual orientation. And it's largely been off the backs of athletes who have stood out and advocated. And what we saw this year was leagues stand with athletes, which was, uh, I think, really important in the right next step. If you've played a sport, you know, anyone who has knows it's like in some ways it's, it's a tough world. But in a lot of ways, we got it right. Like basketball, like the hoop doesn't judge you. Like you're either scoring or you're not. And on teams, it's not when you walk in a locker room. I always say this people. It's, it's not that you don't see color. You do. Everybody does. You know, I feel like you're lying if you say you don't. You know, we respect it. We don't care. We're all here to like do this job. And you start to learn about people. You start to respect and have an understanding, even in moments where you might disagree about something. You know, like I've had so many conversations about like, you know, with maybe a religious teammate who is against gay marriage. So we've had full on conversations, always respectful, always able to voice things. And so in some ways, athletes live in this world where, I don't know, I feel like if the rest of the country was like that, yeah. it, it might be different. And and at the same time, we also experienced, especially black athletes, this like exceptionalism. They're accepted in this different way because they can, you know, score a touchdown or, you know, hit a tennis ball really well. So they see what's happening, yet when you put them in a car pulled over by a cop, they're not that person anymore. So they get treated one way because of that, you know, exceptional play and then another way in real life. And and and, and they're experiencing that and they're kind of showing that and giving that, I guess, outlook yeah. to, to people. So yeah. I feel like as athletes, we have to be the ones. We like literally have to be the ones. And we have live mic. Like I said, we have a live microphone in front of us often. Right. We have this platform. You know, even like Brad Pitt doesn't always have that platform. <laughs> True. Yeah. And I think, and, and the last thing I'll say about it is having person to person conversation to your point, like respectful is still the most powerful form of communication. And I think that's where I'll get frustrated and other people um, that I'm you know close with will look at the microphone and social media, but in the end, like 240 characters, 280 characters, whatever it is now, there's still like misread of tone and such. Yeah. And it can come off as as teaching where just getting on the phone or FaceTiming or the benefit of being in the locker room, especially after a workout or a practice when you're probably most vulnerable because you just sweated with that person. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, now let's have a conversation. You, there's like a baked in level of trust that we get. And that's also what makes the competition in a championship game so powerful is, is you're there, you feel like stripped down to the bone with your teammates going for the same goal. Oh, for sure. That's to me my favorite part about sports. It's like here you are with these people, you had no idea, like obviously you know who they were, but you really don't know who they are as people. You don't know anything about them. And yet you're plopped in this room, in a locker room and like, all right, we have a couple months to try to win this championship. Let's go. Yeah. And then when you get to the end of it, to your point, at that point, I mean, in some ways, my teammates know more about me and like my quirks, you know, or just like how I handle adversity. What happens to me in tough situations? What happens to me when things are going well? What happens when my back's against the wall? They know more about me in, in, in those like deeper ways than probably even my closest friends and family, mm. you know, cause you're literally in the fight in that moment and you're seeing it. 
Yeah, that's when you're showing your 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 true self. So I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try to get this right. There, there's at least 18 championships that I've counted that you've won. If you talk about <laughs> the Russian Premier League, the WNBA, your fourth, uh, FIBA, Olympics, UConn. So so championships, you know, you compete for that. Does it ever get mundane to you? And if not, it's just, you know, you said earlier you're 40, 17 dimes in the championship game. Like nothing's slowing down. So, you know, what's going on? I always say some of it's a little bit of luck and, and I'm not trying to downplay. It's just, you really do at times have to have a little bit of luck on your side, mm. just like, and, and luck to me comes in the form of like not having an injury. That's like a little bit of luck. So things like that have, have definitely helped me throughout. Um, you know, it doesn't get Monday. And I think there was a point in my career where I was, I was playing year round and it kind of got a little like monotone and I, you know, it was like just a little, and you were kind of going through the, but for the most part, what I've come to really appreciate is that whole, like from start to finish process with it all. And, and I don't, I don't even think about the end anymore. Mm. You know, I'm just like so involved in like the day to day moments of it all. And just like now as an older player, I really feel like a mama bear. Like I really feel like I succeeded when my younger teammates succeed because I know I had a role in that. So things have just, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, as you go, for me, I've kind of, my roles never really change on, on teams as a point guard. I'm lucky in that way. You know, like I was never, I never had to take up all the scoring. I never had to take on all of anything. I just, I'm, I'm the one that kind of makes the engine go. And mm. so I've always just, that part has sustained, but then throughout you, you have to, you do have to reinvent yourself at times and kind of you know, maybe like reassess what your version of success is. Yeah. Um, to me, it was always just going to be about what can I do to get the team to the championship? Because nothing really matters unless you, unless you win the championship. Like, I mean, you, you hear it all the time when people argue about players. What does it always end up coming back to? How many rings do they have? That's the one thing that does all the talking. So I've just always put that as like the main, main focus. We're, we're, we're both 80s babies. Uh, MJ, LeBron debate it's actually tough for me that's tough for you (laughs) yeah because (laughs) it is because i see lebron's greatness yeah i do i think i I have a lot of respect for his game and and i think if i had to pick a deciding factor um because i i think i've been on so many podcasts asked this question i bet if you go back like i've said a different person i I bet anytime someone talks about championships i'm like MJ was six for six and six finals MVPs. That's the separator for me. So to me, yes. The other separator, and I'm going to say this, it's going to sound like I'm like shitting on LeBron. I'm not at all. I mean, my level of respect for him is insane. Yeah, he's unbelievable. Yeah, but what gives MJ the edge is he did it with one team. Mm. I think that does play a little bit of a role to me. That's why I mentioned us being 80s babies, because I have this conversation yeah. with Gen Zs, and they're like 10 out of 10 LeBron. Well, of course. They never. They only saw highlights. Right. They didn't experience it. And like, honestly, I'm a Nick fan, so... Oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, I hated Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I respected him, but like, I wasn't a fan because, you know, I was a John Stark fan. And, and this is what like debates in sports are painful for athletes to hear pundits talk about this, because they want to like cut something into a binary outcome. So like, Mm -hmm. who is better? It's either LeBron or MJ. And they're just different classes. I think LeBron, when it's all said and done, and maybe already now has more enterprise value to what he's done. He'll have played longer, which is a credit to him, which is something that I don't think, like based on the documentary, I don't know Michael Jordan, but based on the documentary, like he clearly didn't take care of his body the same way 
because LeBron is now, but that's kind of new to sports. Right. Into your forties and being super healthy is new. Yeah. So who knows if, if MJ had done that. But again, like I said, I think when you think of, of Michael Jordan, you think of dynasty and dynasty is like winning that amount of championships in a small period of time. Okay, we're going to take a break in the action. This is a timeout or end of the quarter. Still trying to figure out that bit. But a note from me, talking about one of our presented by sponsors, public.com. Now, I've been investing for a while. And allow me to say, this is the first time it seems that everyone around me is also following the markets. And a lot better than me, too. It's a little crazy, but it's also very clean. The more we get these conversations off the golf course and boardrooms and into mainstream culture, the better. That is what democratizing an industry is. People learn through experiences, and right now we're all experiencing the stock market through social platforms like Reddit and Twitter and the best place, public.com. So you can follow last week's guests, though, at mcuban on Twitter. If you want to know more about GameStop and AMC, this isn't a plug for that, or you can join the community of investors on public.com. My option and recommendation to you is, is maybe the latter, but don't ignore Mark Cuban. He's really smart. On public.com, you can buy fractional shares of thousands of companies and participate in a community that's built for collaboration and learning. Here's the podcast special. Download the free app. It's free but do so by going to public.com forward slash suiting up. That's public.com forward slash suiting up, and you'll get $10 in free stock on me to kind of get you going. Public.com forward slash suiting up. This show is also presented to you by OutSystems. They are an applications business that make the difference. Allow me to explain. They have a modern application platform for building the software that makes the difference for companies like ours. It's fast, right, and for the future. We call that in business white labeling or private labeling. They built a PLL app that our players, staff, fans were all able to access. Well, not the fans, the cardboard cutout fans were all able to access on a daily basis for COVID health and safety protocol. They empower teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications for capturing new markets, delivering new services, and winning new customers. So build the difference with OutSystems today. You can learn more at OutSystems.com. One of the most difficult, maybe untouched areas amongst pro athletes is the evolution of the person met by the impact of their performance. So I'll give you an example. After I got into sports psychology, I then went through a huge challenge in my life. I was married, then divorced had more therapy, built new relationships, won more games, lost a ton of games, traveled the world. You pick up a lot of these experiences that lead to new perspective on life and life becomes more valuable. Sports, potentially less. I've, I've felt a longstanding battle with having that competitive bite due to the evolution that we have as people. Like when I was playing in college and in my 20s, I would fucking kill to win. My identity was in my sport, in my performance. I was laying out on the field every game. And I now know that my identity is not who I play for or my performance and my results. And I wonder how that impacted my play in my 30s. And then you have yourself, someone who's incredibly evolved, but hasn't lost an edge or a bite. So how? 
It's a good question. It's tough to answer because I'm I'm not really sure. But the one thing I can say is with, you know, experience and years, I've just become so much more cerebral with everything. Like I know that I'm never going to be the player I was physically. I mean, even five years ago, forget, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I'm just not. But where I, where I still have my, to your, to use your word, my bite is like, I'm not letting any team outsmart me. No way. And that's where I find my challenges. Cause physically I actually, in some ways I've just kind of like conceded, like I'm not as fast as I used to be. I'm not as quick as I used to be. I mean, I can still hang in there, but like, I'm not going to be able to physically do the things I used to do. So even if it's like a one-on-one type matchup, which very rarely happens in our league like that, um, I'm not looking at the other point guard the way I maybe did when I was younger. Like, oh, this is, you know, like, I'm not letting you go by me or like, I wouldn't, I don't think of it that way. And if they go by me one time, I'm like, okay, that's life. I don't yeah. stress out about it because my game or the game I'm playing is just somewhere else. It's, it's, it's obviously in my head, but it's like some, happening somewhere else on the floor. And that's where I get really competitive. Like if a team makes an adjustment midway through a game and, and maybe I didn't see it and I go back and watch film and I'm like, fuck, they started switching and I didn't even, I should have done this. That's where I get, mm. that's where like my mojo is. And that's where I, or that's where I get my mojo from. Cause the times when you do do it right and you look over and the, the head coach maybe tried to do something and, and you were still able to like burn it and you, and you can see them pissed. Yeah. That's my win. You know, or if I see a player, this is more so when you watch film after the fact, if I see, you know, our team able to do something and you can see maybe the opposing team kind of, you know, put their head down and slump their shoulders because they just got beat on something. You're like, yep, that was my win. Yeah. And so I actually get a lot of different wins on the court that have nothing to do with me. Yeah. Hopefully I called the play and hopefully I had my team prepared for it, but it could be somebody else who's actually executing it. And yet I get the win from that. I feel like I won that possession. Yeah. Do you have, you mentioned being able to let go of like errors and stuff. Do you have a, uh, do you have any like strategies or mindfulness stuff that you've picked up or is it just like part of your present play? You're just oh, fucked up. That person got by me. Boom. Gone. You're not harboring on it. I have not always been amazing at that in college. I was like notorious for throwing like adult <laughs> tantrums when I messed up and it's still a work in progress. I don't think I've mastered it at all. I still, you know, just like anyone will get, can get down on myself in a game and have a terrible stretch, maybe even finish the game in a bad way because like my head just never got back in. But I think like the best way I can describe where I'm at with it is kind of like, you know, shooting for basketballs is, is the easiest way to explain it. When you're in a slump, I just really, at this point, put a lot of trust in almost like the law of averages. I'm like, listen, you've been shooting this basketball for, I couldn't even tell you how many years. And you've always been This is me talking to myself. Like you've always been like, I don't know, 30, 40, like high thirties, low forties, like for three point shooting, that's who you are. And so I just kind of put some trust in knowing this is who I am Mm. and that it's going. And the only thing that's different is, is what I'm thinking. And that obviously impacts how you, how you play, like what you do with your body. So I just put a lot of trust in that. That's a good tidbit. I'm going to start using that because I was in a big shooting slump for our bubble and our bubble was uh, two and a half weeks. So it was basically being in a slump for the entire fucking season. <laughs> no, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, and I actually listened to a podcast. It was a long time ago, but I want to say it was like Tony Robbins was talking and he was basically like, think about the times where you're playing amazing. Are you thinking? Nope. 
But think about the times you're not. All you're doing, I'll use basketball. Like all I'm doing is like, oh, I didn't use my legs. Oh, I didn't hold my follow through. Oh, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And you're just like all caught up in all these like little, I don't know, like mechanics. But like when you're shooting well, you're not thinking about any of that. Not thinking. Yeah. So like the minute I feel myself starting to think, that's when I have to like shut it off. I like that. You probably picked up a bunch of resilience going through injury too. And you were dealing with it in the bubble, but it goes all the way back to your freshman year when you tore your ACL at UConn and then responded. You've been dealing with your knee. Every injury I've had, I'm like so thankful for. Really? As awful as they are, rehab always sucks. I would not be who I am because I think I have um, just like an innate mental toughness. It's, It's there, but I'm also like very laid back and I'm very chill and I'm also shy. And how that plays out in sports is like, I'm, I'm very much like, I'm going to dip my toe in this water. I don't jump in head first. And there are times where you can't, you don't have the time to do that. I remember my college coach talking about that with me. Like we did like a ropes course. He probably doesn't even remember this actually. I don't think I've ever talked to him about it. We, were, we did like my freshman year, they took us to this rope course in the Berkshires um, to like do team bonding and all that stuff. And in stuff like that, I had no fear. I'd be like, oh yeah. They'd be like, okay, climb this rope and do this. And that. I'd be like, boom, I'm in it. Yeah. Okay. We need a volunteer to do like the hard part. Boom. I'm volunteering. And he basically was like, I've never seen you have that type of attitude on the court. On Mm. the court, I'm very much like, okay, let me not be too aggressive. Let me see where I fit in before I, okay, let me get my teammates involved before I try to shoot. Okay. Let me. And he was like trying to teach me in that moment that I had to be, have that same fearlessness. Yeah. And I just, by nature don't, it's there, hmm. but I always needed someone or something to like bring it out. Yeah. That's the hard part. And he brought it out by just verbalizing it to you and then showing examples of where you do have it. Well, yeah. And he also just made my life a living hell for four years. <laughs> that was, <laughs> he basically was just like, not just me, all of us just like put us in these impossible situations in practice. And then, you know, you start to realize the more you beat them, the more confidence you get. And and then you also start to realize, oh, this confidence that I have in myself, this is not about what other people think of me. Yeah. This is not about someone telling me. This is me doing it. And the more you do it, the more confidence you get, and so on and so forth. What type of practice situations are we talking about? Is it like seven on five and stuff like that? Or yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. He would definitely do like the outnumbered thing. He he would just he would nitpick, mm. you know, like the second you thought you did it right, he would find the one not even mistake, like half a mistake and just rail you on it. You would do enough where you were just exhausted. And then the minute he could sense we were exhausted, then he would put five on seven. Mm. So now you have to think while you're tired, you're outnumbered, you got to figure it out. That's kind of how those practices would go. And did he have an ability to then like bring you all into his office and, and create that like trust and camaraderie again? Or was he just always the kind of antagonist? I'm sure every player has like a different true, true. <laughs> different story. Yeah. But for me, no. Well, Coach Ariyama, I proudly say this now because I know it drives him nuts. I don't think he's like, he, he, he'll tell you. It's, it's not X's and O's that got him to where he is. He's, he, yes, he's good at it, of course. But that's not, that's not what got him to where he is. It's his ability to read people, his ability to challenge people, his ability to get the best out of people. Hmm. That's his wheelhouse. Um, I remember another story again, my freshman year where there was just one practice very similar to what I just described to you. And at the, at the very end, he was like on me, on me, on me. And I wasn't, um, terrible, but I wasn't like doing great. And at the very end, it was like a scrimmage. And I made like the last, you know, two or three plays 
And the last one was like a jump shot to win the scrimmage. And it was funny because he actually emailed me. You can imagine this. He like, I, I came back to my, you know, my dorm room and it was like this email and it was basically like, why does it take me yelling at you like that for you to basically like hit the game winner and tell me to shut the fuck up? Mm. And I was like, yeah, good point. I don't know. Because yeah. I'm 18. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. I remember getting those from my uh, college coach, Dave Petromala. And, they, and they, you know, these coaches have had to change a little bit with the next generation of players. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure like, you know, the Bobby Knights and the coach K's and the Dean Smith's of the world going back were, were even tougher than the coaches that we had. Um, so there's a change there, but you, you talked about, and I sort of asked it and then I jumped to another question. You talked about last second shots. So how do you think about clutch gene? Do you develop it as an eight? I think I, I want to say it's an eight. You do? Yeah. Damn. It's not to it. say that you can't, that doesn't change. But I think when people are, are clutch, they've probably been that way their whole life. Hmm. That's kind of my experience with it. So you feel good about that. So that's that's one of the self-talk things then. Like fourth quarter, yeah. coming down overtime, do you feel like the same nerves in the huddle coming out of a timeout? You don't. You're like, give me the fucking no, I don't. I don't really feel nerves in that moment. But a, a lot of it is because I've been hitting game winners my entire life. Like hmm. literally getting back to like seventh grade, I can remember. Yeah. So. What's interesting is I have a friend whose sister did like a, she went to Columbia, I believe, and she did like her senior paper on the clutch gene and did like all the studying and this, that, and the other. And I was just like a kid in college doing this, but all the research I say. And what she said she found was like shooting percentages. It was specific to basketball. And it was like people's shooting percentages don't change that much. And I, I actually just don't believe it. Like, I just don't. I think there's, there's a moment. Clutch gene is a moment. It's not how you played in the fourth quarter. It's these mm. one, it's these single moments. And I do think it changes. I do think that's why some people are considered clutch and other people aren't. Like, there's a reason, you know? That's how I grew up thinking about that theory as well. And then when I was in uh, sports psychology with this guy, John Elliott, who works with the Spurs and, and does stuff uh, with the San Francisco Giants, is he made a comment similarly so so most of the 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 all-time great clutch players in sports there's something inside of them because it's not just they they don't get nervous they actively want those moments but he was like the other thing is to upkeep that gene is to continue to put yourself in clutch situations away from the game and i don't know about you but when i uh i was so goddamn competitive all the way through college and in through through most of my 20s that it pulled me away from any sense of like off the field competition, whether it's a board game with my family or playing pickup hoops with my friends. I was like, I can't do it because I'm going to take one of your guys' heads off. Uh, I'm the same way. But I think that hurt me over time because I, I then was like exclusively in competitive environments at the pro level, because at least in college, we would practice year round. So I could get that competitive push. But when you get to pro lacrosse and it's kind of part time out of the gates, I was getting paid 6,000 bucks to play and I was just playing in the summer. I wasn't getting the volume of those uh, moments. So it was an interesting okay. suggestion. And I wonder if like there is an outside chance that if you're born as an athlete and you don't have that clutch gene or if you haven't shown up to, to like figure out a way to practice being in those moments. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. So I'm similar, but it is a little different. So I'm similar in that. I would say it was more later in my my life, I guess, like probably the last 10 years where I would remove myself. Or like if yeah. someone's like, oh, do you want to play this? I'm kind of like, nah, I'd rather yeah. just chill. Yeah, and can't I play say, ping like, pong. I'm competitive, for life. I'm competitive for my job. I don't need to be competitive right now because I know I'm just going to get sucked in. 
Yeah. And they're and then what's going to happen is they're not going to like it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's lose lose, honestly, because you're yeah. going to show a, a level of competition that should be reserved for pro sports. Like it really <laughs> yeah, is kind exactly. of like, okay, this person's got like a weird switch. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I hear what you're saying in terms of like keeping that part of you sharp because I noticed it. I was playing, like I said earlier, I was playing year round for so many years, like 10 years, just year round, year round. I never had to worry about it. I was just constantly in games, constantly in games, games, mm -hmm. games, games. And then I stopped playing overseas. And my first season in the WNBA, not playing overseas. So I didn't play for psh, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, like seven months. I didn't play in a game. Yeah. That was the first time for me. And in the, that WNBA year, oh, did I notice it? Wow. There was just like a level that, it wasn't that I couldn't get to it. I wasn't naturally going there. It wasn't just like a given. Yeah. And I was like, it was like, I felt like I was getting like slapped in the face almost by it. And it was that next off season where it was like, even if it was just pickup games or dumb, like dumb basketball competitions within my shooting, I had to keep this competitive thing. Like even something as small as, you know, beat the pro, which yeah. is like a classic basketball game where if you make one, you get a point, but if you miss, it goes minus two and you got to get to 21 before they do anyways. Yeah. Classic. Um, yeah. Classic. So you even, I even had to add that to my workout, you know, and keep it competitive or else I do think it does. It's not that it goes away. It's just not sharp. It kind of dies a little bit. Yeah. So you mentioned overseas. So your time in Russia playing in the premier league, that was like a seminal moment for you as an advocate for women's professional sports in the U.S., WNBA, and then obviously Megan does a ton on on the soccer side. It's done amazing work over the last decade or so. But you, you and Diana were over there getting paid half a million up to a million dollars with incentives, chartered flights, and you were like, "Hey, this is this is 10x. It's not even on the margin." And in a different country where I wasn't expecting this, what's going on with the resourcing for women in sports in the U.S.? So you were obviously getting your game on um, and staying sharp, but you were also going, wow, this is a totally different environment for women's basketball. Is that what got you into the PA side of the house on, on behalf of the WNBA? It played a role. It played a role. It wasn't so much that we were experiencing this Russian life and I wanted the WNBA to be like that. It wasn't, it wasn't that because it's just two different business models. A lot of people don't understand that. Like they don't have, it's just individual owners who want to spend money. And like our owner overseas, um, one of the teams we played on actually died. And when he died, the team did too. It's, uh -huh. it's, it's really that flimsy. Yeah. It's not the business model, but it was the idea of like two things. It was like, why we shouldn't have to come over here. If you want to go over there and play, great. But that shouldn't be like why, like the, the have to, we have to do that to make money. We have to, like, we should be focused on growing the WNBA in a way where it can be the one league we all play in. And what I, what I learned is that when we go overseas and I'm guilty, I'm just as guilty as anybody else. It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Hmm. And because we were making money, I wasn't invested as much in the WNBA. Like I would be on, I was never a play. I wasn't even a player rep until probably like five, six years ago. So the first like 15 years of my career, I was just like, yeah, I'm going overseas. Oh, what? The CBA is coming up. Yeah. Uh, yes. I vote. Yes. Yeah. Like whatever. Cause yeah. sidebar, there was never conversations about more money in that moment anyway. So it was just like, okay, yeah, we agree to the same shit we've always had, mm. but it was because I was making so much money overseas. I didn't, you know, it's also really hard to do two things at once. Yes. I was just going to say when something's your only 
priority, like your only job, your one priority, you are just so much more focused. Mm. So maybe it took me going overseas and coming back and stopping to like have that new focus. But yeah, that's when I was like, oh, this need like I need to be involved in this. And you got involved. And then even during the wobble, 68% increase in viewership year over year, averaging half a million viewers on on television. That those are big numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in an environment where most legacy leagues were seeing a downward trend in viewership. Uh, so despite the political hijacking of the social advocacy, um, we saw more games of WNBA on television and viewership increase. So so there was, there was a new CBA that was struck pre-pandemic. Seems to be like moving in a really good direction. What are things that you think are just you're, you're constantly either advocating for or in the weeds on that others may not know that will continue to push... Uh, you know, more gender equality and women in sports into the spotlight? I think perception is a big thing for us. That's always been a problem. Somehow on early in the WNBA's life, the word got out on some things that I don't even know how to explain it. Like just the way people have looked at us and thought about us. And a lot of times it's, it's people who haven't even been to a game. They just had this perception. Mm. And I think that was really, to me, one of the biggest things we were fighting Yes, we want more money. Yes, we want this. Yes, but like to me, it was just perception. Hmm. And some of it changed, I think, with the new CBA. Because now, what you're hearing is, you know, when when the new CBA hit, one of the first things was like, oh, WNBA players can make, oh, their max salary is now two hundred fifteen thousand. And with marketing deals, and this is all true, some players had the chance to make a half a million. And when people heard a half a million, I think the perception changed. Yeah. You know, we've always talked about needing more coverage, needing coverage from the media, having the, you know, opportunity to have, you know, corporate sponsorship. We've always lacked in these areas. Oh, what do you know? This summer we had more media coverage and we had more viewers. Shocker. Hmm. You know, yeah. it's just like all these things. So those two have been kind of like on my personal little mission statement, but perception's definitely one. Um, just like how our league is viewed. I actually got in not trouble, that's not even it, but like I said some things. Megan and I talk about this a lot. And yeah. She actually wrote it way more eloquently than, than I spoke it in her Players' Tribune piece about how women's soccer gets a certain level of attention. Why doesn't women's basketball get the same? And does it come down to the demographics of the league? And it's funny because for me, it's like the things I was saying, that's based on my reality. That's yeah. based on what people tell me. I've literally had, I can't even count how many people have come up to me and been like, oh, maybe if you guys were tighter jerseys oh you guys are too big and too black oh you guys are too gay i mean i've literally had people say that and but that's the perception you know as then again has nothing to do with basketball those comments so you were like basically addressing the patriarchy that's existed for as long as this country has and you were like you know soccer has been portrayed or women's soccer has been portrayed as the girl next door funny thing is is all the the like comments i got back the first thing people did was now listen i always say this if you're not a fan of women's basketball cool I'm not, I'm not forcing anybody, but don't, don't not be a fan when you've never seen it. That's the, that to me is that weird gray area. But anyways, the, the, all the comments I got back were like immediately having to do with, Oh, you guys aren't as good as the men. So that's why nobody watches you. Uh, what do you know? We're getting compared again. Mm. So it's just, it's just constantly happening. It's so funny. Yeah. Not like ha ha funny. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I'm sure it's like just insanely uh, annoying and uh, requires a lot of uh, resilience. The NBA had a perception issue in the 80s. It was, yeah. and it was, it was researched and pulled as a league with 
players who use drugs. MJ addressed it on his on his doc too, and then David Stern addressed in the marketing of the league through its players. And then the brands came in, McDonald's, Gatorade, and started featuring Magic Bird Jordan. And I think that's really important. It's, it's what we try to talk about as well or try to get more of our corporate sponsors to do. And it's a big ask. I get it. But it's not just enough to give us cash compensation and product. Like We want you to believe in us to market the sport back out because that's the way. I mean, this is in the end, it's entertainment. This is entertainment television. Like if people don't know the games are on, that's an issue. If they don't, you know, uh, admire uh, or revere the athletes on television, that's also. And then if you get to the third one, which is which is the best, if you get the first two, is now all of a sudden there's like drama played out behind the scenes on the floor, and then that creates that last second moment that people tune in. That's what boxing promoters have built, you know, a business for over a hundred years on is like all of this build up into a fight and actual beef, or it's contrived beef. But then people want to see who knocks the other one the fuck out. So I'm so glad you said that because that's the other part of the CBA that I think uh, I'm like most excited about, most proud of. It took a lot of negotiation to get it Um, without going into too much detail. We essentially like restructured um, our max salary, our minimum salary, um, not just adding money into it. It wasn't just that that helps, but we, we changed some of how it worked. And what that did or what that is doing, it's allowing for a lot of player movement. Hmm. And this was the first year where we had those kinds of talking points or discussions, right? Like, oh, Dewana Bonner was on Phoenix. She's won two titles there, or maybe three. I can't remember. Two or three. She wants out. Oh, they were able to get a trade done. So now Skylar Diggins is on Phoenix, and she's. And when te- when players move like that, it's a it, people talk about it, and it, it you know creates this excitement. So that was something that was, I think, so crucial to our CBA. It's, it's just to get people to talk about it and have storylines. Storylines, yeah. And then the other thing that you said, just to touch on it real fast that I wanted to comment on was, for us, maybe similar to you, it's don't just give us money and product. You're right. It's like, we have been looked at, I think, when people look at us, it's like, oh, they don't make money, I'm not going to invest, right? But like, it's, notor- it's like everybody knows that male sports don't always make money. But they're never looked at like that. Right. They're looked at like, oh, let me put money into this to help grow it. We are, we're, we're not, we're looked at not as a great investment. And we need mm. to be started, people need to start looking at us like an investment the same way they do with male sports. Yeah. You no, know? you never talk about the NBA teams losing money. And I get it when they're sold, they're sold for billions of dollars. I get it. But people don't really talk about that. But they're on operating losses to your point, right? And right. then they always talk about us losing money. Yeah. So it's like, and then it's like when we're given money, it's almost like from a charity perspective, like, oh, yeah, we'll give the women some money. Here you go, charity. Like, I'm, I don't want to be a charity. I want to be invested in. Yeah. Do you think that adding W in front of NBA, I think that people feel that that like part of gender gap is, un, you know, why do the women have to get an acronym? Why isn't yeah. it not the MNBA? And then right. I asked some of my women's colleagues on the lacrosse side and they're like well you know what like we just we want to do our own shit so where where do you land on it it's not something i've given a ton of thought to you know sadly i think at times my age can it's been it's like so beneficial from an experience standpoint like when i'm sitting in the meetings with the you know with our ec and the union i have this like other level experience but i also have like and i own it i have like a little bit of ptsd or something where it's not that i don't want more it's like well, we've never, you know, I don't, I don't even think to ask for more. And that's what I love about the younger generation at times. Hmm. They push the envelope, even when it's like, even when it's unrealistic, 
they'll push the envelope, like maybe for a charter flight. They don't, they're like, no, nah, give us charter flights. And I'll be the one in the, like in my head, I'm like, well, we probably don't have money for that. Right. But like, I need to break out of that at times. And they push me in that way, which is great. Yeah. Um, and I say all that to say, yeah, it's like, why is, I hear what you're saying. Like, why is the NBA the baseline? Like, why is male sports, why do they get to be the baseline of, of the title? And mm-hmm. we have to add the woman to it. Should we just have a totally different name? Have we been piggybacking off that name? Yeah, this is where a younger player would probably be like, yeah, man, get that W off. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we so I, I did an event in San Diego this weekend. It was a co-gender lacrosse event. And we had this like Shark Tank uh, evening exercise. And the girls there who were in middle school were presenting like the next version of women's professional lacrosse, which right now has gone through like a, a hiatus and they're trying to find new ownership. And, and, and you know, we want to figure it out too with the POL. And, and they had expressed, and this is one of my favorite things about doing this exercise is like, God, getting a chance to listen to the next generation. And they were like, no, we just like to chart our own path. And it's another example of like, let's listen and, and try to work together on it. I know that even on the negotiation side, I've learned that talking about gender inequality and the patriarchal system in business and the wage gap that's existed for a long time has created an environment where, you know, thinking and feeling confident in negotiation doesn't exist for a lot of women in business because they haven't been uh, groomed the same way that the young boys are. Um, And that's what I also hear, which makes things even more difficult. Yeah. I mean, I can attest to that. I actually can feel that in moments when we're we're in negotiations, Mm. like within myself. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge to like break that. It's, it's, it's a, you're conditioned. (laughs) It's hard to break it at times. Yeah. So I'm actively trying. And again, that's why, that's why I think our executive committee right now is just, it's, it's really perfect because everybody kind of has their own little role in that way, you know, to mm. like bring that to the table, yeah. to challenge. Um, and it's, it's worked out well. So last thing you, I congratulated you on the championship. I've, I've been feeling bad this entire podcast by not fucking starting congratulating you on your engagement, but, <laughs> but you and Megan <laughs> broke it on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and like everyone was sharing, it was such an awesome moment. Um, how are you all? Have, have you begun planning? No, we're like, we're totally like, honestly, it, it doesn't feel like we're married or have been married, but like we've known this is it for, for a while. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel much different. So that's why I think we're, and then plus COVID, we're just not in a rush. We want to, we want to do it post COVID life. So even if that means, you know, two years, we're okay with that. Yeah. Um, the funny thing about the, the funny thing about when we posted on Instagram and we did that because at that point we'd already been engaged like over a week, I think, but, and we had told our friends and family, Megan's book just came out and she was going to be on book tour type, type calls. And she knew our agents, I should say, knew people were going to ask. I was like, all right, we should probably do something publicly. So it's on our terms. And we literally were sitting there both with the post, the Instagram open, like finger on, you know, send. And we were like, all right, one, two, three, send. Cool. Mine went through, hers didn't. Didn't know that till the next morning. Oh, she didn't even check. No, like we were literally, we actually, we were actually, um, what were we doing? We are at dinner. And so we're like, okay, let's just go boom, send, put our phones away. Didn't look at our phones until probably like, I don't even know. Actually, I lied. One of our friends looked at her phone and was like, oh my God, Joe Biden retweeted it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, holy crap. Yeah. Amazing. Is, Is that a normal tactic? Like, do you post and then get away from it? I don't really think about it much. Yeah. That was like specific to, we were at dinner. Yeah. 
So we were like, all right, let's just do this. Get it over with. Yeah. Boom. Pocket. Cause we were, you know, yeah. but yeah, hers didn't go through. I was like, Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> a, duo. a duo drop. Yeah. Turn into a solo drop. <laughs> well, well, okay. So I, I, I do want to ask you one more question, but it's, it's, it's selfish for me and my purposes of, uh, improving. So what do you do for practice now? Not much. When you get back into it, because I know you're going to play next season. Yes. So the short of it is actual practice. So I, I, the analogy that um, a coach once shared with me as she was preparing for my like practice schedule, she was like, listen, you're like a tire. You're like tread on, you have tread Mm. and we can't be wasting your tread in practice. And I was like, couldn't agree more. And it's like, I don't need to do, I need to do what I need to do for me to feel good. So I've definitely developed that routine of like what, how many shots, not exactly a number, but like the shots I need to get. So I feel sharp. Um, so if practice is two hours, I might do 45 minutes of the scrimmaging part. So I feel sharp, but I don't need to be doing like three man weave and I don't need to be doing like defensive drills. There's just certain stuff at this point. It's not going to help me. I just need live play. And then I need to make sure my body's right. And that usually happens in the off season anyway. Hmm. So my off season is all about getting my body right to a point where when I get to the season, I'm, I'm good to go for the games and practice is just staying sharp for the games. Yeah. That's like, I've been doing that. I mean, a quick story that, that I think really paints the picture is, um, cause I've been on that plan for like four or five years now. And Brianna Stewart had, um, just joined our team. So it was her rookie year and we sat down to do a, an interview and it was probably like two or so, you know, two weeks into training camp. And they were like, so Stewie, like, what's your first impressions of Sue? And she was like, she's on the bike a lot. <laughs> and I was like, I gave her like the cruelest side eye. I was yeah. just like vicious with it. I was like, did you just say I was like, right, the bike a lot? <laughs> For like more than half a practice, I'm just staying warm on the bike. And then when we scrimmage, I jump off, I scrimmage. Yeah. And then when they do a drill, you know, like I just don't need to be doing those drills anymore. It's just a waste. Live me. play then. Live play is super important. All live play, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. Appreciate that advice. Sue, thank you so much. Of course, I'm glad we got to do this. Okay, big thank you to Sue for being so gracious with her time and sharing so many inside stories. Sue, hopefully you've received that bottle of wine and Bose headphones by now for being so great. Thank you again for joining us on the show. And for those of you that stuck around this long, if you snap a pic of where you're listening to the show right now and you tag us with a question, I will write you a reply. And hopefully Sue will too. My handle's at Paul Rabel. Hers is at S10Bird. So take a picture of wherever you're listening to this pod. And also, while you're doing it, consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows. And if you give us a rating and review, I would greatly appreciate that. And for your review, maybe suggest a question for our next guest, who, coming up next week, this person, and Brett doesn't even know it, he's sitting across from me, this person is responsible for the rise of skate. Many call action sports, X Games, one of the largest grossing sports video games of all time, the 900. I'm not going to say his name. The show is presented by public.com by creating a whole new way to invest. Public also makes a stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies believe in and invest with any amount of money. Follow me on public at Paul Rabel for my weekly musings on the business of sport, media and tech, as well as some of our other guests on the platform like Tony Hawk. 
Check out public.com forward slash suiting up. And OutSystems, they provide tools to help companies quickly build apps, web, and mobile like they did for us during our championship series last summer. They helped us ensure the health and safety of all of our players, staff, coaches, and cardboard cutout fans. Go to OutSystems.com. Everything on this show is made possible by our incredible team here at PLL Podcast, produced and edited by my guy, Brett Roberts. Research done by Andrew Manning, graphics and design by Liam Murphy, coordinated by RJ Kaminsky, and support on our overtime newsletter from the newly minted PLL writer, do-it-all, Joe Keegan. We'll see you next week.